Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm getting a Remington manual typewriter and cigars and a lot of Jamaica rum. And I'm taking lessons, a TAFE course in bullfightings. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders, good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goomperg, for short. Yes, welcome to the first Goomperg brought to you by Rational Fear. I'm Dan Illich and co-hosting up the top is Lynn Doe. G'day, Lynn. Hi, Dan. How are you? Now, good. Now, you're the first person to hear the new intro. What do you think of it? No pressure, right? Greatest moral podcast of our time. None whatsoever. I'm ready to rock and roll. I, I actually, it's actually greatest moral podcast of our generation. I, I, I myself have been calling it of our time uh, for so long, but I went back to check the original source text and it was generation. Well, as a millennial, um, my generation, I thought, was the only one that mattered. So time, generation, same, same for me. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So the second Monday of each month, we'll be bringing you long-form conversations with climate leaders from all around Australia and the world. Who do you want us to talk to, Lynn? I mean, it feels like such an obvious pick to say Greta Thunberg, but I'm also super keen to hear about those people that have made the decision to, say, leave their jobs in the oil and gas industry. Like, I think that is a real sort of moral and ethical dilemma. Oh, yeah, I can imagine if I was earning six figures in the oil and gas industry, I don't think, uh, I'd, have mm-hmm. think I'd have to think a second uh, before leaving those. Now, Lynn and I are going to be talking about three stories about climate change that piqued our interest this month. Um, let's start off with you, Lynn. What's, um, what's kind of uh, caught your eye this month? 
Well, one of the things that's definitely caught my eyes is just all of the temperature sort of record setting scenarios that are happening. Um, I got to go to Antarctica last year and remember it being over 10 degrees when I was there, which just felt like wild for the icy wild west. And this last month, we've seen LA record its hottest day ever, um, clocking in at close to 49 degrees Celsius, which for me feels like Mad Max um, has returned. Well, it's funny you should say Mad Max. At a place called Stunt Ranch in the Santa Monica Mountains, it got up to 50 degrees Celsius, 122 degrees Fahrenheit, which is crazy. I mean... I mean, you wouldn't even have to pretend it was hot there. Like it was, you know, it's, it's there. I think the problem with um, those kinds of temperatures in LA, there are so many celebrities who can't go outside in case their faces melt away. I think that's um, probably the biggest problem for those people there. Makeup and hot weather, just like things that don't go together. <laughs> one other interesting one I saw this week that I thought was really fascinating was to do with wind farms. Uh, now, Lynn, What are some of the most common reasons why people fight against wind turbines in their neighbourhood? It's either because it's ugly. It's either that they're super ugly or it's from an original twitcher, that is to say a bird watcher, because they're killing all the birds. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Bird strikes is a, is a big deal with um, with wind farms. Donald Trump was right on wind farms when it comes to bird strikes. Uh, birds get whacked pretty fast. The blades go past at about 240 kilometres an hour, but some very clever Norwegian scientists have worked out that by painting just one of the blades black on a wind turbine, they can cut bird strikes down by 70%. 70%. So impressive. Um, it's so cool that the other two turbines are still white because, you know, that helps reflect the heat absorption effect. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Well, white turbine lives matter. Is that something? That's probably not a thing. Don't worry about that one. <laughs> I think it's all turbines matter. All turbines matter because renewable energy is the future. <laughs> all turbines matter. That's correct. And, Lynn, the kids are all right. Well, I feel like they're doing a bit better uh, than my millennial generation that I just talked about before. Uh, We also saw this last month, a really cool sort of instance, a first ever in Australia where a class action has been filed by some teenagers against the Australian government, hoping to um, put an injunction into an extension to a coal mine. That's incredible. What is the chance that they can prevent this coal mine, which I think they're talking about the Whitehaven coal mine in Gunnedah, they're trying to get it off the minister's desk. What's the chance they can get that injunction going? I mean, it feels like an impossible and audacious task, but we've seen really cool examples in the US and in like the Netherlands where young people, older people have been able to take governments to court over climate change and have actually prevented coal mines from opening. You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Now to the interview. The first guest on the greatest moral podcast of our generation is former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who once called climate change the greatest moral problem of our generation. It was a pretty interesting conversation about where we are and where we should be going in terms of climate change and how we got here and how hard it is to make big things happen in Parliament. There's also quite a bit of Murdoch bashing in this episode. I think he compares meeting Rupert Murdoch to Gollum. So, Definitely worth listening out for. For me, as a young person interested in politics, the Kevin 07 election was remarkable as it offered quite a stark contrast to John Howard. And he was kind of the... Kevin Rudd was kind of the first leader of a party to have a really aggressive approach to climate action. And I don't think anyone has dared since. 
Uh, I mean, I feel people have dared and then uh, errors happened and people have, again, become really terrified of this irrational slash sometimes rational fear. Um, K-Rod was actually one of the first politicians that I ever got to vote, not obviously directly for with our parliamentary system, um, but when I came of age and got to like go to the ballot for the first time. So it was exciting to actually have someone talk about climate change and then well, you know, history happened. And now there are people coming up who are doing class actions who've never even heard of Kevin Rudd. <laughs> yep, and they're yet to vote probably two election cycles off. <laughs> well, you know something? Here he is, Kevin Rudd. Got a zip. G'day, good to be with you. Kevin 07, I'm gearing up for Kevin 27. <laughs> the return, the return. <laughs> Failing that, Kevin 37. So by which stage I would only be 80, I think. Ah, look, if it's so, good enough for uh, Joe Biden, it's good enough for you. you can well, I'm about to say, I mean, I'd just be in my prime by then. So. <laughs> now, Kevin, to verify your identity, because it's 2020 and technology is so good these days, people listening to the podcast could think, you know, we're actually talking to a bot from Russia here. I've got 11 questions just to verify mm. your identity. And if you get eight of them correct, we can continue on with the interview. Not a problem. <laughs> Great. Here we go. <laughs> First question. True or false? Kevin Rudd once worked as a house cleaner for Laurie Oaks. Absolutely true, comrade. <laughs> Which coalition minister did Kevin Rudd once compare to being caught between a hound and a hydrant on greenhouse gas? That would have been... Uh, was it Howard or Abbott? Howard or Abbott? Do, do, do you need a clue? Yes, I need a clue. Uh, you were you were his counterpart when you were shadow minister for foreign affairs. Oh, okay. So that would have been Dolly Downer. Kevin Rudd's favourite swear words are. Uh, RF. <laughs> <laughs> True or false? Fair shake of the sauce bottle was made up by Kevin Rudd. Uh, false. It was a pre-existing Queensland uh, expression, which I simply adapted for national political purposes. <laughs> According to ABC's Australia Talks program, what percentage of Australians think that climate change is real and want real action? Uh, 84%. Whoa! And what percentage of Australians think that politicians are out of touch with real Australians and climate change? 8.4%. <laughs> Actually, it's 84%, the same amount. Now, Kevin, on a scale of 1 to 10, how responsible is Kevin Rudd for that 84%? Uh, well, if one is I'm not responsible for anything and 10 is I'm totally responsible for everything, I'd give myself... Of probably about a, a three. I actually actually have written here, I would have accepted three to six. So you're on the lower end of the scale. Well done, you got that correct. Finish well, this. I did, do, I did do the mandatory renewable energy target. I did try twice to legislate the carbon price. We'll We've get got a million we'll... houses with solar panels. What else am I supposed to do in three years, guys? Finish this sentence. Kevin Rudd once supported clean coal, but now thinks... There is a problem with coal. <laughs> Finish this <laughs> sentence. Kevin Rudd once backed carbon capture and storage, but now thinks. Uh, carbon capture and storage, the uh, four associated technologies have let yet to be fully proven. <laughs> if Kevin Rudd could have his time again, he would rename the resource super profits tax what? 
uh, the screw you Rio tax. <laughs> I also would have accepted the Aussie dividend, the HSV grant, and the birthright money pit. Uh, I would have um, accepted no, those too. The screw you Rio tax. <laughs> okay, those who blast uh, indigenous cave sites, that Rio. That Rio. Oh, Rio Tinto, of course. Um, mm. Now, uh, final question to verify your identity, Kevin Rudd. Without using the words brown or green, Australia has lost a decade of climate action because... Because Abbott always put politics above policy and found some willing accomplices on the way through. Now they're just different of different colorations. <laughs> Let me just do the maths here. Yes, I can verify that we are indeed talking with. Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Thank you, Kevin. That was very nice of you. I am not a bot. <laughs> not a bot. Not a bot. You have a very <laughs> you have a better Russian accent than I do. The first kind of way to kick off this, this podcast is all about people who have been at the front of climate action and trying to implement climate action. I kind of want to take you back to the first day of the Lodge. Jessica Rudd tweeted this at, on New Year's Eve uh, 2019, 2020, earlier this year. All of Australia was pretty much on fire and she tweeted, is now the right time to share that when we moved into the lodge in 2007, the sole remaining disc in the DVD player was the great global warming swindle. Happy New Year. Do you remember that memory? Did did you watch it as a family? (laughs) No, no, we just sort of had a jaw-dropping moment as we discovered this thing. Uh, Whether that was uh, the last thing that the the Ancien Regime played or whether it was just to stick it right up our nose, I'm not quite sure. Mm. Jessica was telling the truth. Can you remember um, seeing it and what were you think? What did you first think when you when you saw that disc in the disc player? Well, I think I thought about uh, John Winston. You know, what a waste. There's a guy who was in office for 12 years and. Purely within a conservative political paradigm, he could and should have seen it in his own political self-interest to reach over and to take this ground from us. Uh, But he couldn't sum it up. Of course, at the last minute, you know that uh, Peter Shergold, the then head of Prime Minister's Department, convinced him to go to the 07 election with uh, an emissions trading scheme policy. Mm. Um, but his heart wasn't in it, and Abbott certainly wasn't in it, even though Abbott backed it in at the time. But I think it's his failure to grasp its uh, its capacity to sustain his own prime ministership. So that's what I was puzzled about. Mm. Fail against the man for who he is and his deep conservative belief structure, but I'm trying to operate within the grain of his own political survival sort of strategy, which is to say, hmm, if I could do that, I would broaden my tent and hold on for longer and keep bloody Costello uh, away for another 46 years. Uh, do you ever uh, ever think how things might have played out differently had Costello rolled Howard at that point? No, I've never been an alternative history guy, which is what if, what if, what if, what if. Life's <laughs> complicated enough when you just do, 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 uh, rather than have a whole bunch of, you know, post facto reflections on what could have been. So you you dealt the cards, uh, you play with the cards that you dealt with, uh, you make the best decisions possible, and you um, play it as hard as you can. 
to get the results that you need. Sometimes it works and sometimes you fall screaming onto your face. Mm. I want to take you back to your maiden speech in 98. There's a great line in there that I want to share to the audience. And it says, I also believe that governments should not turn in on themselves but instead have a fundamental responsibility to pursue the public good internationally in the promotion of regional and global security, democracy and economic development and the protection of the planet. How do you feel about that statement now and was it hard to live up to those ideals in in your time in office? I've always had a view that, you know, politics uh, has got to be about vision and unless you are painting the vision, which that statement does, um, and you uh, just parodied my earlier remark that climate change <laughs> is the greatest moral challenge uh, of our generation, unless you're actually putting that up there as the goalpost, you're never going to get there. Seriously. Mm. So if it's all about one little bit of incremental change after another uh, and everyone uncertain about what the end point is, well, guess what? Progress is going to be pretty marginal. So I have no problems with that. The alternative is uh, the nation has no vision. It has no mission statement. As a result, we just drift on and ultimately drift into oblivion, Mm. including on climate. What is the future of climate action for Australia? I think... um, Number one is to deliver real political change to make it happen. And I hate to say this, but the current mob don't have it within their DNA to do it. And it's just the truth. If I thought that they could have Damascus Road on this stuff, I wouldn't hold this view. So... Uh, this mob have to have a wooden stake um, whacked through their heart. Um, In terms of what is then done by way of substantive action, my own view, uh, for what it's worth, is A, uh, we need to move north uh, further with the mandatory renewable energy target beyond 20. Um, uh, When I brought that in, they thought it was uh, impossible because our then renewables contribution to total electricity supply was 4%, mm. and it's now 20%. Legislation matters. <laughs> so go north of that. Uh, secondly, on the carbon price, I've always supported a floating carbon price uh, to bring disciplines uh, into the show. Uh, thirdly, uh, we'll be on the receiving end, and we should also be on the exporting end of carbon tariffs. Um, that is, if there are freeloaders in the system internationally, and something the Morrison government haven't worked out, is they're going to have carbon tariffs put on us um, by the Europeans, I think, definitely, and under a Biden administration, probably possibly the Americans. And so that should be a third part of the uh, the armory. And the fourth, of course, is to have genuinely ambitious set of um, national targets uh, for us within the framework of the Paris Treaty, Paris Agreement. The RET is a bit of legislation that you help foster through and it's one of the remaining bits of climate legislation that is quite effective. How was that ever at risk of disappearing, you know, when in in your time? Did you ever see it as a vulnerable mechanism? Yeah, I mean, the organised uh, lobby against us when we brought in the Emirate was huge. You may recall the Senate vote was actually pretty tight. When you say we facilitated it th- 
through or fostered it through. That meant getting the numbers. <laughs> and it was hard. It was tough. Politics is a rough old business, particularly when you're trying to do the right thing. And then the Tories, uh, on many occasions, subsequent to that, tried to gut it, uh, tried to reduce it, uh, tried to emasculate it. And so it's always been under attack from various parts of the uh, of the fossil fuel lobby in this country. So I think its its greatest mortal danger was firstly getting the numbers to get it through because it was a parallel debate to the CPRS and the numbers were tight in both cases. And secondly, it came under, again, its second greatest threat in 2013-14 when Conan the Barbarian took over, <laughs> a.k.a. Tony Abbott, um, and, uh, and wanted to kill it. Uh, but again, he, didn't, he couldn't marshal the numbers in the Senate. By the way, it's the only workhorse on climate change in this country. Everything else is sort of stuff and nonsense. But the real thing that's worked... I don't know, direct action in the Green Army, that's pretty fantastic. Pig's ass. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the truth is, here we are in 2020, yeah. what is working? The mandatory renewable energy target. Plus, if you like you know, 20% of the housing stock getting subsidised solar panels, our work on uh, on uh, the installation of homes, frankly, uh, despite the difficulties with uh, that program, uh, reduced um, energy demand. So demand-side management, solar panels in terms of uh, the subsidies we put in there, but most critically the driving factor was, um, was uh, the mandatory renewable energy target. We kind of hear it hear about the fossil fuel lobby and the lobbying that goes on in Parliament. For you, how did that manifest on a daily basis? What does it actually look like when we hear, you know, the fossil fuel lobby is is in force? And What it looks like is, for example, when I was in uh, Copenhagen and, uh, and hadn't been to bed for two or three days uh, negotiating the Copenhagen Accord, which, frankly, uh, was the draft of what became the Paris Agreement the Copenhagen Accord of 2009 became the Paris Agreement of 2015. Mm-hmm. That's the reality because that's when we crossed the two degrees centigrade threshold um, through sheer, you know, negotiating efforts. So what does the carbon lobby look like? The carbon lobby looks like them being on the phone to the likes of the Bova boys in the Labor Party, some of the factional chieftains from the right, who then get on the phone to the Prime Minister and say, mate, this is a disaster. Mate, you've got to kill this. Mate, you've got to kill um, uh, carbon pricing altogether because uh, Abbott's on the march and the industry's going nuts. Uh, that's otherwise called Mark Arbib. Um, and uh, that's certainly the position I picked up from let's call it the uh, the fringe dwellers of the uh, Labor Party and the Labor movement uh, who've always been pretty um, subject to the um, political and lobbying pressure of the carbon lobby. For you to push back on those folks, what does that look like from your perspective? Like how do you put your foot in the ground and push back upon those in your party who want to, want to tear down what is really important groundbreaking Legislation. Well, my first response to our bib, which is probably why I lost him in terms of the future of the uh, parliamentary leadership of the Labor Party and therefore the prime ministership, was when I just told him to bugger off. Uh, I remember this conversation very clearly, just told him to get lost. Could you use the exact language? Uh, it started <laughs> not with B, but I think it started with a letter, several along in the alphabet from B, right. not more okay. than four extra letters. And... Uh, 
And uh, I said, this is what we're committed to doing. We're going to do it. Um, and then the range of political arguments that they throw against you as to why you can't do it. And then the second one, which was much harder, was when uh, Julia Gillard came in the office, uh, into, sorry, saw me at Kirribilli in January and said, there's no way that uh, I can support a double dissolution based on the um, uh, carbon pollution reduction scheme, the CPRS, having by that stage been rejected by the Senate twice. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, uh, and then third wave was when she and Wayne Swan teamed up to say that uh, we had to, they wanted to uh, abolish the CPRS altogether. And I said, no, because we can't get it through the Senate, we'll defer it for two years. That was a decision that subsequently was leaked against me. It's been said that that, it's been, that decision was that you, you kicked it down the line and, you know, really kicked it into the grass as, as a low priority. Yeah, whereas the reality is we couldn't get it through the Senate, so I deferred it two years from 2010 to 2012-13 from memory. Mm. And there was a reason because it was going to enter into the new Kyoto commitment period. Um, so that's why we I did that, but that was my compromise position against the internal effectiveness of the carbon lobby, working on the likes of Gillard and Swan and Arbib and the Bobber Boys, who ultimately engineered the coup, um, who wanted to kill it all together. And I remember those conversations very clearly. It feels like probably in the last 30 years that every leadership decision has almost been at the will of the fossil fuel industry. Is that an unfair statement to kind of make? Not really. I mean, um, I actually took them on on two fronts. One was uh, the carbon price uh, where I was defeated and I took them on again on the uh, resource super profits tax uh, and was again defeated. So... Um, they, on both those scores, uh, yes, they had the final say, but they had a huge fight on the way through. But do you think do you do you think that they are ultimately responsible for you being pulled out of office in the first place? I think they're a, one of the contributing lobbies. I mean, these things are never neat. You got a cocktail of Shakespearean political ambition, people who just want to, uh, you know, get promoted, become prime minister, and get a bigger ministerial job and a bigger car and a bigger briefcase. Do you get a gigantic briefcase when you become prime minister? No, you don't actually. Here's the so minister's you... one. Here's the prime minister's one. <laughs> That's right. It's got super a ten jumbo coat lock size. on top. Jumbo size briefcase yeah. <laughs> on the side. It has very important person. Yeah, right. <laughs> so anyway, as you know, political ambition is writ large. So that's there. Uh, everyone's ambitious in politics. Me too. Can't say that, um, you know, uh, I'm some spring virgin on these questions. But in the case of uh, knocking off a first-time prime minister, so you've got individual political ambition. Gillard wanted to be in charge. I was prepared to throw anything and everything at it. Secondly, you've then got the Murdoch media who wanted to kill us by this stage because we'd departed from uh, what they would describe as an acceptable Blairite script. We were rolling out the national broadband network. We were determined to act on climate change. And the link between the carbon lobby and the big resource companies and the Murdoch media is acute. And then thirdly, underpinning that, you've got the the, um, the, the big fossil fuel companies themselves. At the time, I remember I was, in, the cocktail. I, I was in New York in 2010 and uh, I was glued to my um, browser at 
at one o'clock in the morning reading what was happening and just completely shocked as to what was going on. At the time, I seem to remember that the argument from those in Labor that wanted to get rid of you was that you were impossible to work with. Were you impossible to work with? <laughs> no, that's just a bullshit argument. It was a post-facto construction. I mean, what's really interesting is that there was an academic at the time whose name was Patrick Weller, who was compiling a book on the operating style of the Rudd government. So he'd gone around and interviewed all these guys and girls, um, uh, all anonymously, by the way, and uh, they all gave uh, uh, copious accounts of uh, how well the cabinet process was working, what a good chair of cabinet I was, etc. So their contemporaneous accounts actually don't lend themselves to uh, that view. And you can understand that when people have executed a bloody first-term political coup against a democratically elected prime minister, that they're going to search around for some sort of... Uh, other excuse. Look, it was ambition, political ambition. They wanted my job. Um, and the case of the factions, they wanted me out of the road because I couldn't abide the factions of the Labor Party because they kept trying to stand over people on various um, policy questions and personnel appointments. Mm. So therefore, you can you invent a narrative. Uh, and if I was so bad to work for, then when I came back as Prime Minister, why did um, practically all the staff I had working for me first time round come back and work for me second time round? I mean, if it was all that bad, I don't quite understand that. Logic. You must have good snacks. You must have good snacks. No, 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 no. But even even detractors like you know, Simon Crean would say that um, you know I was a very good chair of cabinet. Everyone got to mm. say we did things methodically, etc. So look. Just understand that in politics, people are always going to invent their alibi after the event, and this was one of the alibis invented. So, um, And you'll notice it's kind of drifted away. They don't talk about it um, uh, any anymore. And if you go to, if you're really interested in this subject uh, and your listeners are, the uh, autobiography I wrote called The PM Years, it actually kind of deconstructs all of this in some considerable detail. 1,400 footnotes for you and your nerdy <laughs> listeners. <laughs> very thorough, Kevin, very thorough of you. Uh, do you think when you were talking about a plan for 2020, keeping the RET, uh, having a price on carbon, um, do you think it'll ever be possible to get a uh, price on emissions ever again in Australia? I hope so, and that's certainly what I work towards because it's part of the armory. It's not the total armory, but it's part of the armory. You see, you can, what's the end point here? The end point is to bring down greenhouse gas emissions to the extent necessary that we don't have global temperature increases beyond 1.5. Um, we're not on track for that. No. You know the mathematics. Yep. If we did everything we agreed to in Paris, we'd get one-third of that distance, not, not the uh, – and that's – absent the next commitment period uh, under Paris, let alone people actually doing that which they commit to. Mm. So to get to that end point, what can you do? A, on the uh, energy supply side, you transfer out of uh, fossil fuels uh, into renewables. B, you can do that by legislation, as we did uh, through the mandatory renewable energy target. You can also do it by making carbon that much more expensive to use. And there's a third way you can do it, which is where Obama got to in the end, which is that you bring in a bunch of regulatory measures uh, to screw down on the industry itself, mm. you know, other than through a, um, a carbon price. So I would strongly say to the, uh, the carbon lobby, be careful what you do 
if you don't want a carbon price, then you can be regulated out of existence. Be very careful. It's pretty interesting to kind of see machinations right now. A lot of people are talking about this election in the US as probably if Trump gets back in, it'll be the death knell for any kind of global negotiation on, on climate. Do you think if Trump does get in that it, that climate action, meaningful climate action is over on a global scale? No, because, um, I mean, uh, on climate, uh, Trump, you know, like Abbott, is kind of the antichrist. Um, that's just the truth of it. But guess what? Enough uh, major corporations in the world have now become the uh, object of shareholder action uh, or uh, action on the part of their financiers. And so uh, if you're out there with a pension fund at the moment and courtesy of previous Labor government's national superannuation policy, you all are, um, look at where they're investing and apply pressure. Uh, It's having an effect. It's having an effect through uh, the uh, annual general meetings, shareholder lobbies, et cetera. So, therefore, we should not despair if uh, Conan the Barbarian's cousin gets re-elected in the United States. Um, It will be retrograde, but uh, action by state governments, municipal governments, but frankly, primarily shareholder action through not financing these projects for the future uh, is critical. You talk about other governments and in Australia in particular, why is there such a gap between what's happening on a federal level with climate action and the states? The states kind of seem to be on the front foot um, with climate action and really taking it seriously. All the states are dedicated to net zero by 2050. What is that, what is that chasm and, and why does it exist? I think it's because of the power of the uh, the carbon lobby uh, federally, um, and it's just been uh, more deeply entrenched. Um, they concentrate their resources. Um, remember, uh, just on a related matter, when we brought in the resources super profit tax, the amount of money which Rio and BHP threw at that one as a campaign, we're looking at a war chest of around about a. 90 or $100 million, uh, that buys a truckload of advertising. And I'm talking about a decade ago. Mm. So, uh, therefore, you put them together plus then their national mouthpiece, uh, the Murdoch Media. you got paid advertising from the carbon lobby, directly or indirectly. Uh, and then you've got the Murdoch Media, who have always been their mouthpiece and certainly uh, the, um, the greatest opponent of systematic action on climate change in this country. Put them together, apply it to the federal government and federal politics. It's very hard going. The states have really kind of circumvented that and really looked at the science and really tried to appear to be doing meaningful things. Has the fossil fuel lobby dropped the ball when it comes to interacting with the states, or, uh, or I just can't I can't reconcile how the federal government can't acknowledge where the states are at and meet the states where they are, and just do the right thing. Um, I think it's because the. Uh, the I'm talking. Lobby. I'm also sorry. I'm sorry, Kevin. I'm also talking about both both parties here. I feel like Liberal and Labor. Yeah, uh, of, yeah, of, but so am I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been talking about my own mob. I'm not. You know, I mean, I've I've explained some of the uh, failings on our side. I mean, the, the bottom line is, uh, 
for God's sake, you know, the Green Party uh, joined with Liberals to defeat the uh, carbon price uh, back in 2009. Uh, the Labor Party did what it did in terms of the coup in 2010 for the reasons that we outlined. Um, and then um, Abbott, uh, upon his election, uh, uh, repealed uh, the uh, the carbon price, uh, which then then existed. Um, so uh, there's some responsibility to share all the la- around. But let's be let's be blunt about this. Um, the uh, Liberal and National Party have been ideologically committed to destroying the carbon price for a very long time. And had they had a reverse view, we, we, we would be 10 years down the track. But it, feel, um, if it, but it feels like you're, you're talking to two different countries when you're talking about the state's position and the, and the federal position. Like now, it's 2020, surely the federal government can just flick a switch and jump on board because what they're doing is moot because the states are putting in so much pressure and putting in so many mechanisms to meet those targets. That's true. So to answer your question as a matter of analysis, I assume that the carbon lobby spend less time, less effort and less money um, on state counterparts than they do federally, point one. Point two, I just notice and note that Murdoch does not run a campaign against state political parties and state governments on carbon. Mm. Uh, the only exception I would say would be, you know, they're in and out of the Adani debate in the uh, in the uh, in the case of Queensland politics in the last federal election, uh, and they may be back on that uh, next time round as well. So I just think it's differential treatment, uh, and ultimately, um, they know that the t- taxation powers here are a federal power. Mm. So. That's where why they put all their their bucks into that particular basket. I think that's yeah. my best judgment. That makes sense. Now I've got some questions from my Patreon supporters, um, Kevin. I mm. hope you're up for them. Uh, Simon, who is Simon Holmes at Court, asks if you if you work collaboratively with the Libs in 2008 to push through the CPRS rather than roasting Turnbull slowly all the way to late 2009. Do you think you might have got it over the line rather than giving an opening for the rise of Tony Abbott? Uh, well. Thank you, Mr. Holmes, of course. Uh, do your homework and get your facts straight. And have a long chat to uh, to Penny Wong, who was my Minister for Climate Change and who did all the negotiations uh, with, uh, with Turnbull and with McFarlane. Her brief from me uh, was uh, to get a deal. And if you look at our original draft for the CPRS and what we ended up with, Line after line after line, we compromised in order to make it possible for Turnbull to deliver this to his party room. And in the end, what Turnbull took to his party room was what they signed up to and believed they could prevail on. And remember, Turnbull, at the end of the day, lost by one vote. Mm. So it's pretty easy for Mr. Holmes at court to say, oh, uh, uh, in advance, you should have known precisely uh, Kevin, how much further you should have compromised uh, on your on your carbon price, your carbon pollution reduction scheme at the time, in order to give not Turnbull a one seat loss uh, for the leadership, a one vote loss for the leadership, but a five vote majority. Uh, I think it's a little a little defying of the logic to to suggest that anyone could have that level of, um, as it were. Um, uh, foresight. Anyway, ask Penny. She had a complete negotiating brief to do it. On on that, do you regret not building a bridge with the Greens at that point? Um, folks in the Greens say that they never had a phone call with anyone from from your side. That's just a complete lie. L I E lie. <laughs> it's not an untruth. It is actually a deliberate 
lie. And the reason is um, Penny Wong was dealing with the Greens all the way through. Why was she doing it? Because all the Greens are in the Senate. They're not in the House of Representatives, and that's where the numbers were. So day in, day out, she'd be negotiating with the Greens. Day in, day out, she'd be negotiating with Turnbull and with uh, McFarlane. And when she came in and said, we've got a deal, I said, you know, I was uh, delighted. So this whole idea of having some perverse interest in roasting Turnbull slowly is just a nonsense. It's again, it's a post facto narrative on the part of the Green Party that they sought to exonerate themselves for just absolute bloody mindedness. By the way, you want the final proof of that is the CPRS regime, the carbon um, and pollution reduction scheme is a more rigorous regime in terms of its coverage of the economy than the subsequent carbon tax that they agreed with on, with Gillard uh, after the 2010 election, the one that was then ultimately repealed uh, by, um, by, um, by Abbott. So the, the Green Party just have no credit on this. So. Even, even though that was repealed, did you, and that was not your particular policy at that point in time, when it was repealed, were you, how did you feel about that, that repealing? Was it Personal? Was you were you joyful that it got repealed because it wasn't yours, or were you upset that? It- no, I was sick in the stomach. Um, and uh, you may remember that in the twenty thirteen election, in order to seek to preserve it, mm. remember the politics of it was this: Gillard's political failure was this: a, uh, she used opposition to the carbon price and the carbon pollution reduction scheme as part of her push against me for the leadership. That's proven. That's just established. That's a fact. Mm. Secondly, she then has a near-death experience in the 2010 election, scrambles home with the minority government. The Green Party then walk in and say, we're only going to support you if you put a price on carbon. And so suddenly it's a carbon tax and not a floating price. And the problem is Gillard has promised in the previous election campaign that they'll that there will never be a carbon tax under a government which I lead. At that point she killed the political credibility of her government at that point and everything was downhill from then. So when I came back what did I do? To get around that I said uh, the first thing that we'll be doing is to legislate to turn the fixed price into a floating price to make it into an emissions trading scheme, thereby removing the political bugbear. Uh, this was a complete election breach by Gillard. Uh, I've got another question from one of my Patreon supporters. Claire Jenkins writes about this point in time right now. We're in with, uh, with COVID and, and the economics of, that we're living through. She asks, if he was in power, what policies or industries would he prop up to help push Australia out of its current economic mess? Oh, what I'd do is uh, complete the bloody uh, national broadband network in the manner in which uh, it was originally conceived, which is fibre optic to the premise. Yes! And uh, because can you imagine where we'd be right now if w- there was no NBN at all? So we launched this thing way back then, 2008. Um, it was to be fibre optic uh, to the premises. Um, the other mob got elected in 2013, killed it by making it fibre optic to the node in order to look after Murdoch and his mates because they didn't want Netflix to be able to go straight through to people's homes. And as a result, we have a much weaker broadband, as you know. Um, but unless we launched the National Broadband Network when we did, 
there would be no national broadband at present. You'd have bits and pieces in various cities, large cities, but that's about it. So what would I do? Given that uh, where COVID-19 has taken us, which is the digital economy is the future, unless this country has a fully functioning digital network with fiber optic to everyone's house, everyone's small business, et cetera, we ain't going to be competing. So where would I put the cash? Finish the job that we should have completed had uh, not the other mob um, taken um, uh, Rupert's interest into account and killed it. A lot of it, a lot has been written about that. And when you hear it clear cut out of your mouth, do you th- is it weird to kind of see how is it? I guess what I'm asking for, do you have a, a certain sense of Schadenfreude with the way Foxtel subscribers are being dropped off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Fox Foxtel's shit program programming anyway, but um, look. Murdoch knew back then, and one of the reasons he turned so viciously against us is because of fibre optic to the premises. He just didn't want Netflix competition at that point. Uh, he wanted to be able to, as it were, evolve Foxtel into a different business over time because of you know the residual investments in cable, which he'd laid out a long time before then. So I basically marched in, and unbeknownst to myself, because I was just advancing a national broadband network for the good of the economy and for people working from home, et cetera, for the future, I torpedoed his commercial strategy over bloody Foxtel, uh, which was his only remaining cash cow in the country. So uh, am I happy that Foxtel is going through the floor? Nah, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy other people's pain, but, God, you could see this coming. It's so strange. Like if the NBN had been built to its fruition, to its – uh, original design, Foxtel would probably be in a better better position. They'd probably be able to build a robust streaming business off the back of high-capacity streaming. If they had any imagination, that's exactly what they would have done. But they had none. They wanted to protect what was then their billion dollars a year cash cow because everyone in those days was watching Foxtel. There was nothing else. And it cross-subsidised Murdoch's real power which is his national print monopoly, all of which are loss-making, or most of which are loss-making. Let's talk about that going to see Rupert Murdoch. I seem to remember you going to see Rupert Murdoch before you ran. What was that conversation like in the room and how do you, uh, how do you have that conversation and what do you talk about when you, when you tell Rupert Murdoch <laughs> that you're running for Prime Minister? Well, before anyone accuses me of being a hypocrite uh, for doing that, uh, if oh, no, you no, me, one, no, no, no one's accusing you of being a hypocrite. I just want to know no, no, what no. is it like. For, want, what, I, I, what is it like? You know, what is it like? For, what is it like for a person? I understand your listeners to understand why someone like me would do that. If the guy has seventy percent of the print media, yeah. I'd, and he is definitionally hostile to Labor, uh, then isn't it better that I can, as it were, get to a stage where maybe in the two thousand and seven election we get fifty fifty coverage? rather than 99-1, which is the norm against Labor. So that's why I did it, well, to look, reduce we the all know, We all know why you do it. You all want to know why everybody does it. What <laughs> a, every single body does it, Kevin. What I want to know is what is it like? What's the feeling like of waiting in the lobby to see Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> and what is it it's like? like waiting to shake hand, it's like waiting to shake hands with Gollum, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then there's this thing that sits in the room opposite of you saying, oh, Precious, my precious, my precious. 
You have to be a Lord of the Rings fan to kind of understand the analogy there. I hope your listeners do. I think Gollum is widely publicised throughout popular culture to get that. Well, I, I don't know. You know, I'm just uh, I'm just a nerd from the Queensland country. I'm not sure. But so you're dealing with Gollum and you've got to understand that Gollum's got precious in his hands uh, and uh, that's uh, his share price. And he is a deeply far-right conservative individual. So you're just working with what you've got. The only thing that I could find uh, uh, that uh, his interests and mine overlapped was he believes in something called small business formation. Um, And so, and because, you know, um, Therese, my wife, set up her own small business, which became a big business over time. We could talk about that. But beyond that, you're kind of dealing with a guy whose worldview is um, out there to the point where, you know, Attila the Hun would start to blush at a particular point in the conversation. <laughs> and what were you feeling though? What was your what was your gut feeling during that meeting? How, how were you handling that? Okay, well, you're in a negotiation, you know, mm. uh, and, um, you know, he's been around longer than me. He's dealt with political leaders, a lot of them before me, Um and uh, so am I, of course, anxious that I'm going to get a, a better outcome for the Labor Party than would otherwise be the case? Of course I am. Mm. Um, and uh, but you know something? It's impossible to warm to this guy. There is there's nothing personal, personally redeeming about him. It's just, you know, and I, I've had many interactions with him. There's just nothing to talk about. Um, there aren't any values there that I can identify um, of any redeeming quality. It's transactional. It's about the share price and it's about power. That's that's his worldview. For me, it's quite strange to reconcile that the Australian who has had more effect on the world than anyone is Rupert Murdoch. It's uh, in some respects, he is Australia's greatest Australian, (laughs) but but he's also Rupert Murdoch. He's our worst He's our worst export. Um, you know, in the United States where I spend most of my time, yeah. like since um, I came second in the 2013 election. Um, that's Do they give you I a certificate or a, or, a, or a ribbon for coming second? You get a runner-up prize. You know, you get red for coming second. Right. You get blue ticket for coming first and you get green for coming third, I think. <laughs> but anyway, okay. so... Um, so I'm in the United States. So I've been running an American think tank for the last five years. I get asked every day by Americans uh, how we ended up producing this phenomenon, which is uh, which is Murdoch, who is not just a cancer on the Australian democracy, but is a cancer on the British democracy and a cancer on the American democracy. Now, tell me, do you think we can get meaningful climate action around the world if we convince that we convince Rupert and Lachlan that climate action is worthy? I don't think it's a deliverable outcome. Uh, Murdoch is such an arrogant individual that uh, he regards his own worldview as by definition right and that uh, climate change is just, uh, you know, uh, as uh, as Abbott said, is uh, absolute crap. That's his worldview. Lachlan Murdoch, Murdoch is no better, by the way. Lachlan Murdoch is as deeply conservative on climate questions as his father. The only reason he would change, I think, is if somehow the ultimate News Corporation share price was about to be ripped to pieces as a result of it. So News Corporation shareholders, think about it. Uh, well, Gary has uh, chimed in. He says, how can we dismantle uh, Murdoch's media hold on our politics? We've kind of covered that a little bit. I don't think that's possible, right? 
No, I think uh, we need to uh, revisit the uh, media ownership laws in the country. One of the reasons why I, for three years now, have called for a royal commission into uh, media ownership and diversity in this country is that we cannot any longer sustain a system whereby this guy controls 70% of the print readership. In my state of Queensland, which usually determines federal election outcomes, he has 13 of the 14 newspapers. uh, And you ask the question, why is this state, you know, constantly such hard going for the Labor Party? That's one of the reasons. Do you think it even is relevant now in 2020 when you've got things like Facebook and and misinformation at such huge levels that Murdoch has kind of his powers diminished and fake news is probably more of a threat? Well, Murdoch is fake news. <laughs> so, I don't know, what, I, what I mean by that is, that, uh, is you'd be surprised because uh, what's happening with the hollowing out of the news industry in this country generally, the demise of local newspapers, or regional newspapers, independent publishing houses, the collapse of APN and Fairfax uh, getting thinner and thinner, uh, is that why does Murdoch handy, hang on to these loss-making enterprises? Because he knows it's still an avenue for political power. And why is that? Because both the uh, radio, television and social media still take so many feeds out of print, which mm. he continues to dominate. Why does he have hundreds of working journalists at The Australian pumping out conservative crap every day? It's because if you go into a radio station in you know some uh, regional centre in uh, in rural Victoria, guess what's open on the uh, yeah. on the uh, on it's, the interview desk? It sets the agenda. Copy yeah. that day's Australian. Yeah. It sets the agenda, and that's why they do it. Now, Gary also asks: Is Joel Fitzgibbon and his support for the fossil fuel industry a liability for the ALP on climate change issues? <sighs> I haven't sat down with Joel to have a long enough talk about what his actual endpoint is here, um, whether he's seeking to change federal labour policy uh, or whether he's simply trying to protect his own seat. So I'll just pass comment on that <laughs> until I've really had a decent conversation with him because I don't quite understand the game plan. Leadership is hard, Kevin, and I really appreciate you taking time to answer our questions today. If you had one bit of advice for leaders heading into this space to and people of all walks of life wanting to show leadership on climate action, what would you say to them? I'd probably say two or three things. One, keep up to date with the technical and policy literature. It changes remarkably quickly, both in what technology is capable of but also where the policy debates are going. It's very easy to become, as it were, outdated. It's the first point. Number two, be absolutely unapologetic about establishing uh, a bold uh, policy vision. Uh, People may not like um, climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our generation. They may like it. Um, But whatever the equivalent is, you've got to hold uh, open a vision by which uh, people can then uh, mobilise and organise action. The second thing, without a vision, the people perish, one of the Old Testament prophets once wrote. And the third thing is this, vision is useless unless you do three things, organise, organise and organise. And so here is the great problem often uh, with activists of one form or another, is that they love to seminar, they love to talk, 
but bloody organizing, that's difficult uh, and it's hard. And so organizing people to get onto talkback radio on 2GB where everyone screams and shouts at you is quite different from whether you join the queue to end up on Q&A in a more comfortable environment at the ABC on a Monday evening. So organize, organize, organize. So read, keep across the literature. Two, lay out a vision uh, for the Sunlit Plains Extended vision splendid on the sun that planes extended for what is the destination point for climate so that it is both about our environment our ecology and our economy wrapped together and three organize 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 and the last one is hard on the hard subjects one of the hardest things about this is thinking about climate in terms of justice for leaders heading into this space how can we reconcile justice for people who are on the who get the raw end of the deal from our lavish lifestyles talking about people who are most climate who are most climate vulnerable and people in in areas where their their land is going to be taken away by by sea or by fires how how can we start really how do you think about climate justice and like what's is there is there one prism you look at that through Yeah, we've got to have the prism, as I have sought to in my own political life, uh, of being a global citizen. I mean, it's so easy uh, in political life just to see yourself as Joe Local or at best um, Joe National. By definition, this one goes way beyond the national boundaries. So unless uh, you have political leaders who see themselves not just intellectually, but emotionally as global citizens. Um, That is, uh, has about a quality of empathy, which is um, those who uh, risk the inundation of their entire lives and livelihoods in Kiribati and Tuvalu, uh, Marshall Islands and elsewhere, Uh, those who will be forced from the land uh, in terms of the meagre, uh, subsistence economies, which they support, 40 million of them in the low, lowest-lying parts of, of Bangladesh. Unless you actually have these households in your head, then it's an abstraction. So that's one thing. The second is what you do about it. And so when we did the the second pillar to the Copenhagen Agreement, which was the $100 billion Climate Adjustment Fund, uh, for which then became the Green Fund, uh, to assist in adaptation purposes for those sorts of uh, uh, countries and economies and regions, um, and frankly, you're not serious. So it's both attitudinal and understanding um, you know, as John Wesley used to say in a different context several centuries ago, the world is my parish. Um, uh, that is, you know, we're global citizens here and it's a planetary challenge. And, but then secondly, being brutally pragmatic about the policy instruments necessary to support people who um, are not going to um, have an option. One of the enduring images I think of your prime ministership was during the Queensland floods and seeing you walk down uh, streets in your neighbourhood helping people uh, who to evacuate the floods. And something interesting by comparison is seeing Scott Morrison holidays in Hawaii and then coming back to Australia and saying he doesn't hold a hose. When you see that kind of leadership, what goes through your head? 
Look, I don't know what was in his head when he started to go to Waikiki. I've got no idea. And so I don't know what family pressures were on him or what all the rest of it. But what worries me about Morrison more generally, I've got to say, is this. When people have christened him Scotty from marketing, I think they're very close to the money here because as a former state director of the Liberal Party, Morrison, in my experience, is always concerned about how he appears and how the Liberal Party appears in a marketing and public relations sense. That's his first instinct. If you, to, if you were to ask me this, what is Scott Morrison's policy worldview? I couldn't answer you. And I've known this guy quite well in the federal parliament when I was still a member. So, and we've got these sort of folks in the Labour Party as well. I'm not pretending to be Robinson Crusoe. I'm sorry, not pretending that this is a unique problem for Liberal Party. It's just that this guy's ended up as prime minister. Uh, I, th- I thought you were pretending to be Robinson Crusoe because you have this amazing beard, but... Uh... That's by the way. No, 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 no. That's that's my attempt to go into my next Hemingway phase. Right. I'm getting a Remington manual typewriter and cigars and a lot of Jamaica rum, and I'm taking lessons, a TAFE course in bullfighting. So you know, just to to, <laughs> uh, to complete the Hemingway sort of um, delusion. So I think you know, I, I don't know what was in um, uh, Morrison's mind, but I've got to say. Uh, even against his own benchmark, that was a big marketing failure. Mm. You know something in politics? It's not all that complicated. The Australian public can spot a fraud at a 1,000 paces. They look in your eyeballs and they they know whether you're for real or not. And, <laughs> and the problem here is uh, this guy's a marketing guy um, and that's... I think ultimately he's downfall. Kevin, in Australia, do prime ministers get to keep the title? Do I have to call you prime minister, Kevin Rudd? Oh God, no. <laughs> the, um, and uh, I think it's one of the great things about Australia: we don't go in for all that stuff. In that case, I, I live in America, and people call you prime minister all the time. It's get, it gets embarrassing uh, here. I'm I'm very lucky on a given day if I just get away with Kevy. Usually, it's considerably worse than that. Well, Kevy. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Irrational Fear. <laughs> You're completely generous with, um, with the topics we went to and the areas we went to. And I, uh, I thank you for, for your time and your insight and your intellect. Thanks, mate. Pleasure to be with you. And uh, thanks, for, for, thanks for knighting me on Twitter. That was very kind of you. I didn't deserve it, but, uh, you know, a, I thought, only, okay. I thought only Tony Abbott could do that. No, no, it's, uh, it's a general dispensation for those of us who have been prime minister of this country. <laughs> thanks very much, Kevin. GM Pook, the greatest moral podcast of our generation. That was Kevin Rudd. What did you think, Lynn? If you start watching all of the Lord of the Rings movies now, including all the, the Hobbit, you should be able to finish it just by the time the world implodes. So you should be fine. By the time we leave lockdown? That's right. That's how I'm spending the rest of Melbourne Stage 4. On the second Monday of every month, we're going to be holding these conversations. Coming down the line, I'm going to be talking with Yessie Mosby, who is fighting for the Torres Strait. Uh, Sarah Wilson, Adam Bant and Rebecca Huntley are also on the list as well. Uh, and I want to know who you'd like to hear from. Drop me a line at dan at irrationalfear.com or on social media. Thanks a lot, everyone. We'll see you next month for the greatest moral podcast of our generation or next week for Irrational Fear. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.